This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped. Now streaming only on Hulu. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me. Billy Joel. Wheel of Fortune. Sally Ride. Heavy metal suicide. Foreign debts. Homeless vets. AIDS. Crack. Bernie gets. Oh, a bad man. Dark Vigilante. Hello and welcome to episode 117 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that explores post-war history and the reasons why the world is like it is today, all done through the lyrics of a number one smash hit from the legend that is Billy Joel. I am Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie, are we ready for one of the final parts of our long-standing and very beautiful adventure? I'm so ready. I don't know how beautiful today's adventure is. It regards Bernie Getz, a name not so known these days, but in the mid-80s in New York City, and in fact right across America, he was quite the figure. Do you recall anything about this story when you were a young person? Absolutely nothing on this occasion, Katie. But having done our usual huge amounts of research, it is a fascinating tale with plenty of twists, plenty of moral dilemmas, and at its heart... A figure who I find really confusing. He's a confusing figure. So just uh, the facts here. He was referred to as the subway vigilante, which might be overstating the case, but he was packing heat on the subway one day in New York City when he was set upon, this was his side of the story, by four young black men from uptown, and uh, he thought he was about to be mugged, and he shot all four of them. This was quite the cause celeb. And I have to say, reviewing this situation, anything to do with guns, Tom, is a red mist situation for mm-hmm. me. I, I, I instantly feel extremely emotional about it as an American, because as you know, in the last 10 years, in the last one year, in the last 10 minutes, mass shootings have just soared through that ceiling. And there's more and more entitlement in America for regular Americans to feel like they have the right to kill fellow citizens. It it just makes me so angry. One thing that I think about is a, a friend of mine from high school who's a great guy, so talented, so fun. He actually has one of the biggest bespoke gun-making firms in America. Uh, He has quite the following amongst people who who collect such things. And in fact, he sells his uh, wares to various 
uh, police departments across America and also to Hollywood that his guns appear in films. And several years ago, I was looking at his Facebook feed and he had posted a cartoon or he'd like reposted a cartoon depicting a man waiting online in a supermarket. And the joke, as it was in this cartoon, was the man thinking to himself, hey, I have a gun. I'm, I'm, I'm holding, I'm, I'm carrying a gun, a concealed weapon. And if shit goes down and uh, trouble starts, who am I going to shoot first in this line? So that was the idea. The joke was he was sort of fantasizing about who he was going to kill first. So it's this this old high school friend liked this cartoon. He shared liked, it. He right. shared he shared this cartoon. He liked it. And I was so disgusted by this that I I blocked my friend and he later wrote to me to ask, you know, you know, we had a conversation about it and he he said, "Oh, no, that was just I'm, you know, that was just silly. You know, I don't necessarily feel like that." But I think th- it just goes to show you the perception of like this fantasy that you're going to protect yourself and other people by carrying a gun, but all you're going to do really is just make the the body count get higher. Kill someone exactly like you. Yeah, you're going to kill somebody exactly like you. I, I, I mean, anyway, so I'm going into this totally biased and, and already frothing about it. I, I definitely need a cooler head to prevail on this. And that is why we're bringing in today's expert. He is a reporter for the Associated Press in New York, where, in fact, he's been covering the case of a contemporary so-called vigilante, Daniel Penny, who killed Jordan Neely recently in a chokehold. Our guest's name is Bobby Kaina Calvan. Welcome, Bobby. Glad to be with you. I just went off on a rant there. I normally don't, uh, but this is just something that I feel very emotional about. I guess what would be useful at this stage is to discuss the, the Bernie Getz story. What happened? Who was he? Who were his victims? Well, it all began, apparently, when uh, uh, Bernie Getz got mugged a couple of times. And so he started, as you said, packing heat. He started carrying a thirty-eight caliber handgun with him. And just days before Christmas in uh, 1984, Getz was on a subway train when one of a group of four young men approached him and asked him for money. Getz said he... Uh, thought he was going to get mugged. So he pulled out his handgun and began shooting. He shot all four, one of them twice. And in fact, that person uh, ended up uh, uh, being paralyzed. And then, you know, Getz left the subway. He disappeared into the uh, the subway tunnels. And, you know, a little more than a week uh, later, on New Year's Eve, in fact, he uh, surrendered to authorities about 250 miles away from New York City in a neighboring state called New Hampshire. You know, a lot of people you know, of course, heard about this, you know, even before uh, uh, social media and so forth, the the news spread out that uh, we had a subway vigilante in our midst. And a lot of people called him a hero. Of course, others were uh, calling him a white vigilante who was too quick to shoot uh, four black people, four black teenagers. And, you know, he was eventually uh, indicted on a slate of charges uh, ranging from illegal gun possession to uh, assault and attempted murder. 
And, you know, the shooting, as I said, generated a lot of interest. You know, it spurred debates about racism, vigilantism, and crime in New York City, and whether what he did was right or wrong. And ultimately, a jury um, had to answer that question. And, you know, Getz's lawyers, you know, argued that Getz was in imminent danger. And by the way, it was later discovered the four young men had screwdrivers tucked away, although, you know, Getz never actually saw those screwdrivers. So theoretically, he would not have known that he was in imminent physical danger because of those uh, screwdrivers. And ultimately, he was only convicted of uh, criminal possession of a handgun. And he was acquitted of uh, the more serious charges, including attempted murder. And he spent uh, about a year in custody. Flash forward today, and as you said, you know, we've got the case of uh, Jordan Neely and uh, Daniel Penny. Right, there's a lot to get into here, Katie. There's um, some things which appear very clear, but actually there's a lot which is opaque about this case. So let's just dig into it a little bit more, Bobby. First of all, can you try and contextualize for us a bit here? What sort of place is New York City to live in in this period? And why is the issue of vigilantism so big at this time? Well, back in 1984, uh, there was a lot of concern about crime. You know, New York City was seen as a, uh, a place where people would get mugged, place where people would get killed. And so there was this fear stoking. So when Bernard Getz came around and took action on his own to do something, people applauded him, or at least some people applauded him, because a lot of people thought the system wasn't working, that uh, somehow they weren't being protected. And here comes, you know, a hero who decides to you know, put down basically these uh, four young men who, at least through his eyes, were poised to mug him. It's so interesting, Bobby, that he was seen as a hero or, or an anti-hero of sorts, because really the only example recent to his actions in pop culture was Charles Bronson and his movie Death Wish. And, you know, of course, Charles is the very definition of the alpha male, the he-man, taking care of business. Can you contrast what Bernie Getz was like against Charles Bronson? Because he was a a different kettle of fish altogether, wasn't he? Just looks-wise. Yeah, he was. He was this, uh, you know, skinny guy. He looked uh, very mild-mannered. As I recall, he wore glasses and did didn't seem like a, a tough guy, you know, and, you know, maybe that's why he carried a gun. There are some extraordinary video scenes, Katie, that both you and I have watched when Getz is initially questioned. That's right, during the deposition. During the deposition. And you get a sense of a man who doesn't appreciate the gravity of his situation and what he has done. Oh, that's a good way to put it. Like, he, he's a little, he's sort of aggrieved. Like, why is he even being put in the position to have to justify what he's done? Uh, he There's a lot of rage in him. There's a sense, Bobby, that, um, and I don't know if you feel this way, that if he just explains clearly w- what happened and, and what he did, that it, it'll be evident to everyone that it was the right thing to do. Do you, do you feel like he felt like he was just doing what any red-blooded American would do to protect himself? You know, I I can't really address that because, you know, part of, you know, the criminal justice system is, uh, you know, trying to figure out motives and, and, and so forth. And it was up to a jury to determine whether or not he overstepped his boundaries. But I can tell you this. I mean, 
today, at least, and I suspect even back then, people in New York, uh, we managed to just ignore a lot of things. You know, homeless people come on the uh, uh, the subway train a lot asking for money and sometimes acting erratically. But a lot of us just turn our heads and, you know, just go on uh, about our day. So, you know, I can't really speak to whether or not any, in that situation, any red-blooded American would have done the same thing. Who knows? Um, I don't know how many people in that subway car were carrying guns, for example. Um, and if they did, you know, no one else but gets it, uh, pulled it out. There's a couple of quotes, Katie, which I found particularly chilling. These are from Bernie Getz at that initial point. Right. He says, my intention was to murder them, to hurt them, to make them suffer as much as possible. The second quote, I would have shot them all again. My problem was that I ran out of bullets. Seems like he's uh, pretty happy with with the result. And if he had to do it all over again, he would have just done it twice as hard. He would have brought the pain. It's interesting to me that this case was almost a Rorschach test, kind of an inkblot test, depending on where you were on the gun-toting scale. It was like something for everyone. So you had the incipient NRA really ratcheting up to the next level where they were sort of using Bernie Getz as a poster boy. Like, here's the reason why you do need to be armed. And then you had other people like the the Reverend Al Sharpton saying this is exactly what minorities and specifically young black men have to undergo living in the city. You know, they're being preyed upon. And he was a civil rights activist. Yes. Yeah, so Al Sharpton, the civil rights activist. So so he weighed in. But the thing the thing that interests me now looking back on it is that just from the point of view as an issue, this was one issue that everybody thought proved their case. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, how you react to these incidents sort of, you know, suggests where you uh, stand on that hot button issue of, of guns. And it still does today. Although, if we might be able to go back a little bit uh, when you uh, talked about Bernie Getz saying, you know, he'd do it all over again and so forth, you do have to remember that the jury were given all these facts and they decided otherwise, that somehow he was not responsible for, you know, attempted murder. And why do you why do you think that was? Because it almost seems like when you look at all of that, you think, gosh, that's so damning. He's there confessing and his motive seems to be very clear. And yet they acquitted him. Why do you think that was? Well, again, you know, our system, we've got 12 jurors and for a criminal case like this, it has to be unanimous. Now, when you look at the composition of the jury, you know, of 12 people, 10 of them are white, two are black. And from my understanding, I think uh, four or five of them were victims of crime. So, you know, some would argue that some of the jurors had this disposition to take the side of uh, Bernie Getz. However, you know, when jurors are being selected, each side has a chance to uh, decide who gets on as long as they're not being racist. So, you know, there's that context. What was the reaction like in America as this case dragged on, Bobby? Well, everybody was, uh, you know, I was in college back then. There was a lot of discussion about whether or not this guy did the right thing. You know, I personally wondered whether or not 
the person next to me was carrying a gun. And I still think that um, when I'm riding the subway, you know, I'm wondering what might happen to me. And I'm wondering whether or not that was, you know, that was probably true back then, too, that people probably had their uh, guards up. You know, not knowing if they were going to be attacked or not knowing whether or not somebody had a gun um, in the same uh, subway car as them. The thing that's worth pointing out, and Tom, you and I were talking about this before we started recording, there was only one of the four young men who had approached Bernie and asked for money, and the other three were still sitting, apparently, and yet he made a decision to shoot all of them. It seems like an overkill situation, although at the same time, I guess he became this uh, a folk hero of sorts because he's standing up for himself. So I don't know what that says about the inadequacies of people who feel like they're so limited that they need to destroy the lives of other people. I mean, I, I just I just can't help but see this as um, a grandiose fantasy played out by a narcissistic person who just is inadequate in other areas of their life. But that's me and my red mist coming out in their true colors. You know, on the flip side, though, as I said, people saw him as a hero. You know, he was their protector. Yes. And, And also, I'm interested in the role of the guardian angels. Can you Tell listeners who might not know who they are, who are the the guardian angels or who were they and and why do you think that they supported Bernie Getz? You know, the reason they, they, they came into existence is to help keep New York safe. Um, there was, again, this discontent that police and other authorities weren't keeping, you know, the populace safe enough. So again, you know, you might want to call them vigilantes as well. Because they were civilian, that civilians who patrolled the streets and the subways and public transportation. Was that right? Exactly. Exactly. So they were taking it on themselves to be sort of this citizen uh, police force. They were very distinctive, Katie, weren't they? So even growing up in the UK, you were aware of the Guardian Angels. There was oh, you a point, had them over here? In there the, was a point where they came over in about 88 and did, did the British were ver- very dismissive. Red berets or something? Red berets, a little bit like Ferris Bueller. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's very hard to take them seriously in the UK where I think people's natural instinct is to take the mickey out yeah, of Yeah, yeah, people, people are a little more cynical here. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and actually that brings up something that I wanted to ask you about. Do you think that there's something kind of distinctly American about this trend towards being a vigilante? Because you don't really see that in other cultures, I don't think. You know, I don't know whether or not it's a trend because we don't really hear all that much about it. You know, it comes up now and then. But to be honest with you, I don't think Americans are obsessed with a broader trend of vigilantes. You know, they, they, they come up now and then. I guess what I'm thinking is the stand your ground law and just an incomplete list, but the man who fatally shot Trayvon Martin in, in Florida a few years ago, uh, Zimmerman, George Zimmerman. I'm thinking about Kyle Rittenhouse hunting and killing Black Lives Matter protesters, those three men who hunted and killed Armad Arbery who was jogging through a neighborhood, those recent shooting attacks on teenagers uh, who ding-donged the wrong front doorbell or those Texas cheerleaders who got into the wrong car, and now Jordan Neely, who was killed in a chokehold. That's what I'm thinking of when I say this trend towards vigilanteism. And I'm wondering, you know, why is it that you hear about that in America so much, where people are just like, well, 
I, I don't like the look of this guy. I feel vaguely discomfited and I'm going to take their life. I think, again, there is some po- politics playing around in this. And, you know, you talked about the NRA so forth. So the NRA has, over the years, uh, been very forceful in its advocacy for gun rights. And there are a lot of people who think that uh, they should own a gun. As you probably know, we uh, have the Second Amendment here that gives a constitutional right for people to uh, own guns. And of course, I'm simplifying it uh, very much there. But people think they've got a right for it. And people think they've got a right to defend themselves. Bring those two things together. And oftentimes, there are deadly consequences. Speaking of deadly consequences, circling back to to Bernhard Getz, there was a bumper sticker, Tom, that came out at the time that said, ride with Bernie, he gets some little pun there. Do you find that quite strange, Katie? Like we, we've, we've both watched a documentary about this case as well as doing some reading. And you get a sense of, of how New York and wider America was split down the middle by this case. But even, yeah. even at the time, do you not think those people with the bumper stickers would have thought... This, this four young men have been shot here. I think it's easy to maybe dehumanize them a little bit and just think, well, they were predators, we're all victims, and life is cheap, and especially their lives. Certainly by the time it, the news came out that one of them had been paralyzed and, in fact, brain damaged to the extent that he had the capabilities of an eight-year-old, maybe that gave the bumper sticker holders pause for thought. There was a, a civil case, Bobby, which which came uh, several years later in the mid-90s. And Bernie Getz was due to pay a vast amount of money, literally £50 million, to uh, his victim. He didn't pay a single penny, but th- the idea of that court case seems to be, as much as it was about the punitive damages, it was about making people think again, if, if you were Bernie Getz, if you were in that situation, that you didn't just think you could take your gun out and shoot with impunity. Well, you know, that civil case, despite the fact that he didn't pay anything, I mean, I don't think he had that money, number one, to uh, pay all of it. But it did provide some vindication um, that the criminal side of our justice system uh, could not provide. Although, you know, a lot of people think Getz was never really punished for what he did. Um, He, again— only spent a year in jail and then went about his life. He's still alive today, Katie. He's still living in the very same apartment in New York that he was living at the time. Yes, and uh, we saw some footage of him playing with his pet squirrels. Which was remarkably disturbing, watching a feral squirrel climb on his head (laughs) and down his arm. (laughs) Was there an attempt to kiss the squirrel at some point as it climbed down his face? It wasn't very pleasant. Oh, well, you know, even Hitler loved dogs. Not comparing him to Hitler. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, Fire listeners. It's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. 
If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com WDSTF, as in, we didn't start the fire. So, that is betterhelp.com WDSTF. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. So here's what's interesting, and here's why we're so excited to have you explain this to us, Bobby, is that there seems to be a a very eerie, uncanny parallel with the case of Jordan Neely, who lost his life at the hands of Daniel Penny on the New York subway. And you are covering this case. Can you give us just the the broad outline of, of what happened, and then we'll get into the nitty gritty? Jordan Neely was on a subway train. He was going down the corridor of the uh, the train asking for money, and by some accounts, he was acting erratically. Apparently, he was a homeless guy. Apparently, he had some mental health issues. And the thing is that we're not clear exactly what happened um, because there was no video of the uh, episode. There is a video of the chokehold, or at least parts of it. But... We don't know exactly what happened. We only have, you know, the words of some witnesses. And right now, police are, of course, trying to piece things together. What we do know is that at some point, Daniel Penny tackled Jordan Neely to the ground and put him in a chokehold for minutes. We don't know exactly how many minutes. We know that it was at least nearly four minutes because that's when this video showed. Now, this video was taken by a bystander who, um, you know, described a little bit of the scene. And, of course, that video is going to be very, very important in this case. But, again, authorities still want to know what happened before that uh, chokehold. And that's a mystery right now. Who exactly is Daniel Penny, Bobby? What's his backstory? Well, Daniel Penny is a 24-year-old former U.S. Marine, former military, who lives outside of New York City. He was on the subway with, I believe, um, perhaps a family member. You know, we don't know too much about him right now. But as a military man, got a lot of awards, you know, was commended, and He was given the training that every military person gets, including how to use a chokehold and how to get out of it. What's uh, discouraging to me is that instantly you had him heralded as some kind of hero. And uh, he's been referred to by various members of the American Congress as Subway Superman. 
Also, he was called in a headline, the Subway Samaritan. Can you talk a little bit about this idea that uh, somebody who takes another person's life is heralded as somebody who should be admired? What, what is this? What's going on? What's the background to this? So, you know, this is becoming a political issue, by the way. Um, the Republicans running for president have all hailed him as a, as a hero. And what's feeding into this, again, is this fear that somehow people need to take action into their own hands. And here was a guy who, and I'm talking about uh, Daniel Penny, who was trying to keep the rest of the subway riders safe from what he saw as an erratic, homeless, mental health uh, challenged uh, individual. And so he thought that he was going to hurt someone, apparently. And so he decided to put him in a chokehold so that he couldn't hurt anybody. And, you know, again, a lot of people thought that he saved countless people. What I'm not clear on is how much of a threat was Jordan Neely because he wasn't armed. Uh, definitely he was annoying. He, what was he, a Michael Jackson impersonator? Or was that, that was his, that wasn't what he was doing at the, the minute that he was attacked. Is that right? Yeah, he was really well known for being a Michael Jackson impersonator. And when people realized that he was the one who was killed, many of his fans were, of course, surprised and shocked. Um, they never saw him as uh, in any way that he was being portrayed by Daniel Penny and the people who supported him. I just don't understand what kind of threat he posed in the moment other than he was just being an annoying person who was disturbing people's I mean was he lunging at people? Was he armed? Was what was the problem? Well again, you know, the authorities will try and determine as best as they can, but yeah. from the initial information that we've gotten from people who were there eyewitnesses and, and, and the person who shot that video, he did not appear to be threatening anyone immediately. He did not touch anyone, uh, according to the witnesses who have come forward so far. Um, he was, of course, very loud, very demanding for money. Um, at one point, he took his jacket off, threw it uh, down. He was not armed. Mm. So, you know, again, the question is, you know, what prompted Daniel Penny to tackle this guy? Yeah. Extraordinary, Casey, in both these incidents. There's something quite separate, the inciting incident and the reaction to it and the scale of the reaction to it. I think you've put your finger on it. This, from, From everything we've read and everything Bobby has told us, Jordan Neely was being annoying. Yeah. Yeah. And Daniel Penny has decided to respond to someone being annoying and a little bit scary to some people. Yeah. By putting him in a chokehold, which takes his life. I don't know if I'm reading too much into this, but but people have a sense in this day and age that all of their actions could potentially be recorded. You know, people get out their cell phones and make little films of things that are happening. And almost there's a sense that it's it's your moment to to make a stand, to make a difference. And I just don't understand why in America an act of violence is something that is something that is heralded, something that's a good thing. And and why is it that certainly the Republicans seem to celebrate these acts of violence? You know, I don't think they're celebrating the act of violence. I think they are celebrating that someone intervened 
to prevent what they think would have been harm. And it is not universal in this country that, you know, all Americans think that Daniel Penny is a hero. You know, there is this schism in this country, and this incident reopens it. And it's mostly based on race. You know, Jordan Neely was black. Daniel Penny is white. There are questions whether or not if Jordan Neely was a white homeless guy who was acting erratically, whether or not that person would have been treated the same way. He wasn't a brawny guy, but he was black. And he was causing trouble in some people's eyes. Again, the question is, you know, what motivates somebody to take action against what other people might consider harmless? Daniel Penny is going to argue that, you know, he was trying to keep everybody safe, that people felt that they were going to be uh, harmed. So I don't think anybody is actually celebrating the fact that Jordan Neely is dead. Um, Far from it. You know, a lot of people see this as a tragedy. But it has as I said, opened up the discussion again about this long-standing divide over race and how, you know, African-Americans in this country are, are treated, you know. I mean, there's a whole long list of people, black people, who have been killed by, you know, other vigilantes or by, in recent cases, mostly by police. And... You know, this incident kind of stokes that because is the criminal justice system going to properly take action on a white guy who killed a black guy? You know, that question is still wide open, especially for African-Americans who are demanding justice in this country because they've been living this nightmare over and over and over. You know, it seems like every day there's something new. And then you've got Jordan Neely, who's, you know, according to them, was a harmless Michael Jackson impersonator who was acting erratically but was not going to be harming anyone. Casey, here's an example of that schism. So a, quote, legal defense fund on the Christian fundraising site Give, Send, Go has so far raised $2.7 million for Penny. Penny denies he was acting as a vigilante. He insists that he is not, quote, I am not a white supremacist, I'm a normal guy. I'm a normal white supremacist. I find this just confusing, Katie, if not frightening, that all this time has passed between the Bernie Getz incident and the Jordan Neely one. Yeah, in fact, that was going to be my next question for Bobby. What, if anything, do you think has changed in the years between Bernard Goetz's actions and Daniel Penny's actions in terms of public response? The big difference that, uh, again, stokes this discussion is the fact that we have images of Jordan Neely dying the hands of another person. As far as, you know, Bernard Getz, no video. You know, we didn't have smartphones back then. So, you know, we don't have the context of being there as opposed to Jordan Neely, where a lot of us, because of that four-minute video, 
we were there. We witnessed somebody who died, who was killed. And for many people, the emotions boil because they see a person dying. They see a person who is lying on a subway train floor, lifeless. And they are wondering, you know, what the heck is going on here? That's another commonality with a lot of these high-profile killings of, of black people. You know, we've got smartphones now to capture the tragedies, and we can disseminate that in a wide way because of social media. Social media now is a way for communities to connect on, you know, things that are very important to them, and it's a way to amplify some of the, you know, anger but of, of course, also um, a way to uh, amplify the support. But, you know, people have become so angry about, you know, Jordan Neely because they saw him die. So, Bobby, what is the state of play with the Daniel Penny case? Well, he's been charged with second degree manslaughter. And, um, you know, his trial has not started yet. You know, it might be some while before, uh, you know, the legal um, system takes action, before the trial actually starts. In fact, Daniel Penny is right now considering um, appearing for the grand jury to make his case so that, you know, he can get the grand jury sympathies and, you know, avoid a trial. Yeah, it's really the case of the moment, and you're poised right on top of it. Bobby Kaina Calvan, reporter for the Associated Press in New York, thank you so much for helping us understand this very complex topic. Thank you very much. Enjoyed the conversation. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. I can see why Billy included that one, Katie. Oh, gosh. I mean, you know, that's happening in his home turf, and uh, that was so polarizing. It's interesting to me how it was such a novelty at the time, and now it's like, oh, oh, guess what? Somebody else is taking the law into their own hands and serving up suburban justice. Makes me think of a couple friends of mine who live in Texas. There's some uh, couple of cowboy troubadours, you know, 
total lefty liberals, but they pack heat. They drive around in their pickups with lovely little guns in their glove compartments. And their idea is not that they want to go shoot them up at the local strip mall, but they figure, well, if the bad guy has a gun, the good guy might as well have a gun as well. But I feel like that's just a recipe for escalation. I don't know about you. The loathing of violence, Casey, only seems to work one way around, which is you're terrified that someone is going to do something to you. Yeah. And then you revisit a far greater level of violence on the other person. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, just a recipe for making a lot of bad stuff even badder. If you would like another podcast to listen to before Katie and I return to your ears, here's an appropriate one for you. It's called American Vigilante. And this one is about a guy called KC. He lives off-grid and he saves kidnapped children. He is a complex individual, I think it's fair to say. Mm. He could save your life, but he could end it too. Yeah, American Vigilante is true crime, but it's so much more. It's rescue missions, it's assassination attempts, and last gasp protection from the Mexican mafia. It's all about the stuff you hope never comes to you. It's presented by the former BBC journalist Sam Walker. She's been speaking to Casey for months and has recorded everything he's told her. It's shocking, it's inspiring, it's frightening, and for sure, thought-provoking. Search for American Vigilante in your podcast app now. If you would like to get in touch with me and Katie with a story or a guest idea, you can contact us on email. We are at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk or on social media. We are at Spread That Fire on Instagram and Twitter. Make sure you check out our merch collection at spreadthatfire.com. And Tom, the next episode, hypodermics on the shore. Not the kind of thing you want to see in a beach holiday. Casey, I'm not sure I fancy the beach anymore today. Uh, no, Should we I, go for coffee instead? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I really just want to see maybe some you know, inflatable donuts and <laughs> maybe some seaweed, but not a tube of blood. Yeah, Katie, I fully agree with you. Let's see where that episode takes us next week. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. 
We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.